And I just love the imagery of, of these sort of restless and frightened men uh, patrolling around around a fire, lighting up these torches, getting ready to charge at God knows what when it comes over the wall. Marrying her to Willis Terrell would be marrying her to her daughter-in-law's brother. So she would be her daughter's mother-in-law and sister-in-law. Only in the Lannisters. <laughs> it's great seeing the, the, the ground move under Jamie's feet, isn't it? Because he, he snaps straight into entitled city boy mode of kind of like, oh, you work for my father, fabulous, now... What I'll be having is the food and the drink and this woman killed and uh, take these chains off and I'll have this woman killed <laughs> and uh, and bring me a Lamborghini. You know, yeah. <laughs> and then they're all like, uh, no. <laughs> I can't go on. Welcome to episode three of Shark Livraw's coverage of A Storm of Swords. It's the Walk of Punishment. I'm Matt. I'm Dave. Hello. Are you sure and, uh, we're still Shark Liver Oil? Are we not now like <laughs> Masterpiece Theatre? Amdram. Amdram, that's exactly what it is. I can I say you do a superb impression of a terrified coward wandering through endless snow. That was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I you know, I thought my I thought my wind impression was good. I wasn't 100% sure about this one. <laughs> oh, Matt, there's never been any doubt that your your impression of a bag of wind is always <laughs> hey. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, this is uh this is our third part of our um coverage of George R. R. Martin's A Storm of Swords. Uh, this is sort of book 1 if you've got it in two parts, which is Steel and Snow. Uh, you, as we say every week, you can buy this book either as one big volume or two little ones, and we're reading it as two little ones. Anyway, this is part three, and we're going to be reading from um, a chapter about Sam, which was sort of the reference I was making there in a rather hammy way. Um, and then as far as... Where are we going up to? this? It's As far as the chapter about Bran, on page 331, no roads run through the twisted mountain valley. So when we get up to there, we're stopping for the day. But this includes a couple of really big, important set pieces, no more so than sort of the first, the first chapter we're talking about today, which pretty much recounts what happens at the Battle of the Fist of the First Men. Yes! And Dave... This is this is big. Yes. <laughs> uh, so we probably just best get straight into it then. Yes. So, um, oh, actually, uh, just just before we get into it, um, we're we're doing a bit of a drive for feedback as well now. So, if you uh, have got anything to say about what's coming up, uh, what we're talking about today, the Battle of the Fists of the First Men, and various other things, any thoughts on the book, send them in to Shark Liver Oil Podcast at gmail.com. That's Shark Liver Oil Podcast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter at Shark Liver Oil. And Dave, I think we've set up a Facebook group now as well. We are as well. You can find us on Facebook. Just search for Shark Liver Oil. Excellent. Easy that you, although we not find like you do sometimes come across genuine Shark Liver Oil salesmen. On yeah, we, we want to be clear at this point. We are selling no supplements of any description, shonky or somehow genuinely helpful. None of that. All we're selling yeah. is chat. Yeah, so maybe search for like Shark Liver Oil book or something like that. I don't know yeah, yeah we're on there as an entertainment website. They can't have us as a podcast because they don't have the category <laughs> for it. So screw them. 
<laughs> right, okay, let's get into it then. So uh, this big chapter, Sam, one of my favourite chapters in the series, actually. Yeah. Um, it begins, sobbing, he took another step. Uh, we go back to this line again and again, actually, and it sort of gives you a sense of the monotonous, drudging sort of misery of, uh, of what's going on here. And terror as well, eh? Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Basically, Sam's part of what remains of this 300-strong Night's Watch group, which is now fleeing uh, and retreating as fast as it can towards the wall. Um, because it's it, because of what's happened up there, the, the, basically the, the, the Night's Watch were attacked by, it seems like, whites, doesn't it? So <gasps> these, it's basically the word for zombies in, in this this kind of but series. Actual zombies, right? No, I mean, yeah. but I, they, no, but they said it was others, right? So oh, others as well, yeah. So not maybe just both. reanimated corpses, but these sort of weird, proper, like, other beings yeah. that aren't just like king zombies, but are something else. Yeah. And the thing is, as they're, as they're retreating, this group, it's sort of a horrendous retreat as well, that there's this sort of group of, uh, Night's Watchmen on the edge of the group which are holding torches and then everybody else is in the middle and then there are a few stragglers behind and every so often you'd hear like a, a scream behind you as they're getting picked off one by one oh by these word. white walkers. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's atmospheric, isn't it? Because, you know, you're sort of a dark wood, exhausted, four days of walking and there's something about the fact that they've been walking for four days and they haven't all been picked off that makes it even more terrifying because this is clearly mm. you know whatever it is that's chasing them is capable of picking them off whenever it likes and it's just choosing to let them become more and more tired and terrified before it eats them yeah <laughs> and and sam is sam is he was never the most athletic of people and he's utterly exhausted isn't he here yeah. and in the end he, he falls over and he, he just can't pick himself up again yeah and he sort of lies on his back and effectively waits to die and as he's lying there his sort of thoughts drift back and forth from what's happened so we sort of we see this battle um sort of as a as a memory don't we yeah um like at first just little things intrude on his consciousness like he's there's this guy called maslin who he remembers screamed for mercy as uh, one of the whites killed him um and yeah. then he sort of he flicks back again he does Consider that he at least he did his duty. He got the ravens away. His only job on top of the fist was to to send messages of what's happened back, mm. and he kind of succeeds with that. He doesn't get all his messages away, but he gets some away. Yeah, um, which is which is different to the series. In the series, he just completely makes a mess of this, and he doesn't get any of the ravens away. He's too frightened. Yeah, although um, he does sort of doesn't he towards the end of this chapter have a moment where he's he's been telling himself for four days of sleepless terror that at least he did his job and then he remembers that actually he forgot to put any messages on him which is sort of the equivalent of leaving home and forgetting <laughs> to leaving the front door open and unlocked and just oh no 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 yeah <laughs> i think he's, he sends the first ones with messages and oh, then yeah. when he has to go because so he does that and then he's it's what is there's that great moment where he sends off the ravens to say there's an attack and then, because that's what he's been told to do, and yeah. then he stands there and realises he's no idea what to do next because that yeah. was his job and he's done it. Yeah. And then later on, he's got to sort of send updates, and that's when he, he, he gets sort of, to send them. He, he yeah. releases them. Yeah. But isn't that? I, I was thinking because it tells you what he's put in each of these each of these messages, updates, yeah. and um, it, it writes something different in each one, and like not small changes in meaning either. 
But like, mm. just kind of as he's sitting at whatever desk he's got there, listening to the sounds of horrific supernatural torture and death going on outside, he keeps writing yeah. different messages. Like one of them, it writes, seems to imply that they will prevail. And then the next one he writes seems to be like, oh, we're probably going to die. And the next one is like, all is lost, all is lost. And can, I mean, that makes sense to him, but can you imagine sending them all off? At the same time, and them going to different castles. You got like, or even going to the same guy. You got one guy opening them up, going, uh, well, they were attacked. Uh, that's quite bad. Um, oh, but, uh, but they, they, they were quite confident they prevail. Oh, wonderful. And he just sets it down. And then another bird arrives 30 seconds later and he reads it and goes, lost, lost, all is lost. <laughs> that that think- fucking turned around quickly. You know what I mean? Like, it's quite a confusing way of communicating. I think what he's doing is he, he's he's I I I wasn't hundred percent sure, but it's either he's he's writing out a load of different ones, so you know no matter what happens, he's got one ready to attach to a raven and send, so he's got the right message. Mm. So he's sort of writing out all the possibilities, and then he'll send the, the correct one either before he gets killed or sort of before they all retreat, because he's not you know once he knows what has happened. He might not have time to write it because they're going to, you know, they either have to beat a retreat or he's going to have to get killed or he's going to have to <laughs> yeah. fight his way free. Yeah, um, yeah. Or he could be he could be writing one to send, and by the time he's finished it, the battle's changed so much that he's got to write a new one. Mm. And by the time he's finished that, the battle's changed because it because it does sort of that that is the way the battle goes, isn't it? So at first, the thing I love about these messages, he, he writes one, and you get the conditions around it. So he says, you know, we've driven them off with fire and, and then you, you almost hear the, the, the archers firing arrows and cheering. <clears throat> and yeah. his next one is, they're still attacking over the wall and you can hear them coming over the wall. And his next, So he, he's sort of, he's following events and maybe it's just a case of he's, he's ready to send one yeah. and then he realises that the situation's got worse and he writes another one and then That's he's ready true. and he realises it again. Yeah. Uh, you're right, I suppose. I just, I really like the idea of like this being Westeros' first attempt at like rolling news but it just it all <laughs> arrives it is, yeah. it is and it all arrives on the legs of birds who are increasingly sort of tired and terrified and you just have to sort yeah. of piece it together for yourself yeah <laughs> so uh when when sam actually wakes up as the as that third horn blows to say that the uh that the others are attacking he see we, we get this in the prologue we had this from chet's point of view when he had his dagger drawn, he's about to kill Sam, and then this this horn blows. We get it from Sam's point of view, so he just sees that Chet standing there with a the dagger, and mm. he just assumes that Chet's sort of ready for a fight, and then he, the guy runs off. Mm. Um, but that was quite interesting to go right back to that, just from a different point of view. Mm. Um, at, at first, Sam finds himself with a load of the guys from the Shadow Tower, so that this is sort of a one of the other castles along the wall. If you remember, 200 guys came from the night Castle Black, which is the main one, mm-hmm. and 100 others joined them, led by Corin Harfan from the Shadow Tower. So he doesn't know these guys very well. Mm. And they're sort of standing at the top of the hill, firing arrows down at these attacking zombies. They realise that the whites aren't, it's not actually working. And the Lord Commander ends up riding up and down the lines, shouting to, to use fire arrows, which seems to have a, a much a much better effect. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he's, it's quite nice how the Lord Commander sees Sam. Sam's sort of lost, doesn't know what to do. And in the middle of it all, even though the Lord Commander's got a lot of other things to worry about, he sends Sam back to sort of, to, he gives Sam something to do. Yeah. Um, even if it is kind of pointless or sort of semi-useful. 
and yeah. he sends him back to do something, which is quite quite a nice moment. I think. Uh, yeah, I agree with that, and I think that's that's the kind of soft underbelly of what actually makes you a good leader in that situation, and what incidentally would have made Theon such a terrible leader of the Night's Watch, you know, for that, that yeah. 30 second period when he was considering running away and joining the Night's Watch and being like, I'll be Lord Commander and it'll be great. He would have been fucking mm. awful because he just wouldn't know how to do this sort of thing. Whereas, um, you know, Lord Mormont, for all that, for all that he's like extremely gruff and not at all averse to unpleasant violence, is still like knows how to build people up and get them to, get them to do good things. And which is, mm. you know, that's the only way, I think, really, to lead in a situation like that. Yeah. Given all my experience in that situation, you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I like uh, another part of this is he's sitting, where he's sitting writing, next to him are the these men sort of on horses moving restlessly around a fire and, and lighting torches. And it's the reserve force, and they're there to when the whites breach any part of the wall, they charge and ride them down. And I just, it gave me a real sense of the scale here. You can't actually run in between different parts of the camp. It isn't like a small campsite on top of a hill. Mm. It's actually quite big, isn't it? And yeah. you know, big enough to charge to one to, from one wall to the other, yeah. um, which I never really got from uh, b- before I sort of got to this part. And yeah. I just love the imagery of that, of these sort of restless and frightened men uh, sort of almost patrolling around around a fire lighting up these torches getting ready to charge at god knows what when it comes over the wall yeah yeah it's fantastic isn't it once again you just have no sense of this at all in the tv series i mean why they didn't Hmm. do this i don't well i do know because it costs a lot of money but it's just such a missed opportunity because this just sort of happens they're all portrayed at at, back at craster's keep aren't they or they all just get killed whereas here it's like it's a proper fucking battle against these things that you've been that the story is actually about and that you have, you've barely mm. seen for two books. Yeah, and also, I mean, although obviously for budget reasons you can't do massive battles all the time, but this is in the dark at the top of a wall, so you oh, don't... You could actually... You could, you could film it all at close quarters, couldn't you? It wouldn't need to be a massive yeah. uh, thing, but... but know. You know, it occurs to me, you could make a really great low-budget film version of this, couldn't you? Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, a, like a fan project sort of tribute... <laughs> actually filming this battle that nobody else bothered to film film it in the dark lots of lots of uh flickering orange light and uh, put yeah. your couple of mates in a cookie monster outfit and you sorted <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> it'd lose some of the drama wouldn't it, it? Would, yeah but, it would be, but you well. film it straight up until the moment when the first one leers out of the darkness googly eyes askew going cookie 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 <laughs> i think there's mileage in that <laughs> In, ter- in terms of this attack, whether it's an attack by the others or by by whites, it seems to me that all of Sam's memories at the top of the fist are of being attacked by, you know, reanimated corpses. Mm. And I just wonder if the if it's because there's this ring of of fire around the fist that they can send the others can send um, zombies in, but they can't go in themselves, and they're just waiting out in the cold for when. The retreat happens. Uh, that's I quite interesting. So do we have an idea here of, of the others as being like a sort of undead version of like the Lannisters, just sort of hanging back and sending in wave after wave of pointless, faceless foot soldiers to go and do their dirty work? <laughs> Is there an aristocracy of the undead, do you think? Well, there's definitely an aristocracy insofar as the others are served by these, you know, the people they kill and bring back to life just to do their bidding. Mm. So you've got two very distinct 
monsters here, haven't you? You've got the others, which are these almost semi-ethereal beings, which we come across later on in the chapter. And you've got the whites, which are just almost old-school zombies, apart from the fact they don't actually eat you. They just sort of, I think... Tear you to shreds. Tear your head off or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I was actually on that. Some of the descriptions of how people die in this scene, gruesome. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's one, isn't it, where a guy spears um, one of the whites, and the white sort of—it's almost like classic horror moment. This as yeah. the white sort of pulls himself up along the spear and then twists the guy's head off. Yeah, it was the twisties guy twists his head off that I like. That that for some reason really shocked me there because I can see yeah. the creepy of this beast making its way along along this spear, mm. but then that moment where it's just like and twist and and I was like, oh man, just yeah. it was very vivid for some reason. Yeah. Uh, we sort of flash back to Sam um, in the present as he's lying there and Gren comes across him, one of the sort of, one of John's group, and uh, and kicks Sam and tries to get him on his feet, but Sam just is just done in now. He just won't move. Mm. And, uh, and and Gren doesn't want to leave him. And then, and then we get that sort of, it's almost like briefly having your head above water and then back, we're back down diving into the memory and into what, what's going on on the fist of the first man. Yeah. Um, and yeah. at this point, the whites have come over the wall. The you know there are too many. It, basically, the battle's almost over now, and there are two things. I mean, one is this. I mean, one of my favourite moments in this chapter is the emergence of this zombie bear, which is like <laughs> bizarre, but also oh, it's great. Cool. There's nothing. There's nothing better than a zombie bear, is there? Really? And, and uh, Thorin Smallwood, this the sort of standing first ranger, gets a real sort of first ranger's death, doesn't he? He, mm. for all his failings in the past, you can't really knock him for the bravery he shows. Where he sort of he turns, sees it come wandering out of the sort of side of the wall, and just charges at it. Slight, like takes a massive swing from horseback and almost takes its head off, and then the bear sort of removes his head, mm. and it's. Uh, it's quite a, I mean, it's quite a fitting end for a guy who wants to sort of die with a sword in his hand, I suppose. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Hey, it's a good, it's a good way for him to go out, having had a, a, a largely mediocre and unimpressive time up to this point. <laughs> he does turn yeah. around. I love though the idea of this bear, the way you described it just then, just sort of shambling into the camp, just sort of like he's forgotten where he's supposed to go. Everybody else is like <laughs> a zombie whipped up to heights of rage by the whites behind them, and this bear's just sort of there, skin hanging off. Just going, hmm? Is there honey in here or what? Oh, I'm supposed to be killing. Yes, brains, brains, brains. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, uh, Mormon, the Lord Commander in the end says, you know, we're not going to hold this. He gets everybody to form up and, um, and and leads a charge down the south side of the mountain. And when he, when he sort of shouts the order to do this, there's somebody else shouts back that that side of the, the hill is absolutely crawling with with whites mm. but he says this is it's the only side which is which is isn't so steep as you want to actually make it down there mm-hmm. so it's the only way they can go mm-hmm. so they form up this wedge formation of like a cavalry charge mm. and just hair it down the down the side of the hill yeah and this is this is horrendous as well because even as the as they're charging people are sort of disappearing left and right of sam as they get pulled off the horses or the horses get get sort of pulled under mm. and um it's Again, it's it's a really vivid moment, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and terrifying. Really puts mm. you in the moment, man. I was just great scene, top to bottom. And then we're back with Sam as the as the, there were these sort of last ring of torches going past him as sort of the the 
the back end of the of the the retreating party walks past, mm. and by the time eventually Sam is is lifted onto the shoulders. Do you remember Small Paul, this guy who was part of the the group that was going to run away and uh, mutiny? Um, he sort of picks Sam up and starts carrying him. Mm. Uh, and it's interesting as as the last of the uh, of the torchbearers walks by, they mm. say to Gren, "You know, you, you're best off leaving him. You don't want to get caught behind." And you really get a sense of the <clears throat> dangerous as it was before this retreat. Once you're out of that inner circle of torches, you're in real trouble then. Yeah, yeah, and it's frightening. And I was really struck by Gren's kind of insistence that um, mm. that Sam needs to be needs to wake up because in the tv series there was less of a an idea of sam really enjoying camaraderie it's like john liked him out of honor and pity but everybody mm. else was like you fucking useless bag of suet whereas this is a, this is a really nice moment sam's just at his lowest possible ebb and here's here's one of his mates going pick yourself up you know keep going yeah yeah it is and in the end as well and i suppose as- also, this this guy, Small Paul, who I mean, at least Gren is this is part of this very small group of pe- of friends, so you'd expect him to do it. But this this sort of Small Paul guy doesn't really know Sam that well anyway. But it's just because they both it, it it makes real it forges sort of really strong bonds anyway. If you're in the middle of a battle, aren't you on the same side? Yeah, and yeah, yeah. You, you always hear tell of that from soldiers, and it, and it's an, just an example, I suppose. Yeah. So the torches are gone, and this is the moment when one of these white walkers or others, or Cookie Monster zombies, if you prefer the name. <laughs> if you absolutely um, must, and I must. Appears, and, I mean, kills Small Paul, and it looks like it's going to do for Gren as well, until Sam, in a sudden display of hitherto unseen courage, Pulls out this this dragon glass dagger, which they remember they found all this dragon glass on top of the fist. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And and stabs the thing and and kills it. And Beautiful. you go, oh, we do super weapon. We do indeed. And and what a beautiful place to find a super weapon, but in the hands of somebody who's just crapping himself, terrified. Yeah, brilliant moment, yeah. isn't it? Absolutely brilliant. <laughs> yeah. And what, once once the once the thing's taken care of, they realise that dawn's on the way, and they've still got a chance of making it back, which gives you a bit of hope at the end of what was essentially a very hopeless chapter, wasn't it? It was, yeah. I mean, it's the sort of chapter you can get away with having occasionally, where it's all hopelessness, but like kind of evocatively done. Um, mm. But the dawn at the end of it is the right thing to do. But how exciting is this? A super weapon that you can use against against the others these things that we we've had nothing to do with almost we just know that we need to be really frightened of them and they are coming yeah and and then and then suddenly you discover this weapon so exciting and i am i'm i'm so curious to see how that's going to go down you know yeah um yeah definitely like are they going to get back alive they kind of have to otherwise westeros is fucked but you wouldn't (laughs) bet on their survival at this point would you no, exactly. The whole chapter is uh, start to finish. I just think is a real, just a real visceral and thrilling page turner, isn't it? You just you just yeah. fly through it. I think part of it is is as well because George Martin sort of hinted at it and said this has happened, this, and you and you've spent the last few chapters wondering are we ever going to find out what happened up there, and finally you get a real blow by blow account of it. Yeah, 
Yeah, absolutely. It's quite nice. Next up's Tyrion, and probably the only character that I thought could really follow that kind of chapter because you don't want to go to a you don't want to go to a Bran or an Arya chapter after this and think, oh, <laughs> more walking, <laughs> is it? <laughs> um, yeah, it's Tyrion on the the new small council, and this this so it's it's filled with sort of people who and the place there at the end of the Battle of the Blackwater. So it's, it's basically, I don't know, I felt this this small council, unlike the previous ones, is full of sort of loud and proud men and yeah. rich men. Yeah. So you've got people like Mathis Rowan and Mace Tyrell and Paxter Redway and all these really proud lords who've all got something to say. Mo- and Tyrion sort of regards them and thinks, shit, um, I don't <laughs> know whose side any of these guys are on. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Probably yeah. not mine. <laughs> Yeah, that's true, isn't it? I, I felt like it felt like a big reset button. This, and you know, of course, it is because you know one of the key scenes. If you're going to tell the story of King's Landing, which is the story of Tyrion, then you've got to have this moment where the king's, you know, he's on the council, and the council is explained, and they're making all the decisions. And it's all about politics, and it's mm. fascinating. But it was like the start of the previous book all over again. But again, yeah. he's just in this worse position, and you really feel yeah, for him at yeah. this point, don't you? Yeah, and you felt at the start of the first book when he's it's him against Cersei, you think, well, he's he's got a good chance of sort of turning things on the head and and wresting power from her. You don't see that happening with with Tywin. He's far too shrewd to to to, to sort of fall for anything like that. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought all these lords have been given they they end up dividing up the spoils of war, so and they all want land. You know, so Mace Tyrell gets a load of extra land and gets to make his son an important uh, sort of smaller lord. Mm. Um, Mathis Rowan gets a load of land as well. The only one he doesn't is this guy called Paxter Redway, and he's kind of like a, a real a medieval businessman. Yeah. He's, he, the Redwains own um, this place called the Arbor, which is where most of the wine is produced, and. The only thing he asks for and gets is like a a reduction in or a complete. Uh, I think it's a serious reduction in in taxes on his wine, and he's absolutely loving it because <laughs> he's going to make a fortune. And it's just interesting. It's he's the one character that is thinking a bit outside the box. Everyone else is just thinking about land because yeah. that's what people do yeah. at this time. Yeah. And you can you can see why this guy is particularly prosperous because he's he's got a different interest, which is managing to serve. It's interesting, isn't it? Because everybody's got one idea of what constitutes wealth and prosperity. Um, hmm. Uh, in this place, and of course, Redwine, red true to his name, has got an idea that that's not actually the only place to make money. Um, uh, it's a bit, it's quite, it's quite middle class, isn't it? This, it's, it's quite sort of. I got, I got a new accountant, and he's saving me ten percent a year. Magnificent! But the new accountant in question is a big sword. It's just really weird mix of like medieval and Knightsbridge. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there are a few updates from the war, from the war, in the sort of in the Riverlands, and the demise of House Tallheart is complete. Uh, oh, because, Matt, your boys! Yeah, one of the uh, I think the head of house or the most recent head of house, 
uh, our Lord. He's uh, he's been killed at Duskendale. Do you remember the Tallhearts and the Glovers were sent off by Rhys Bolton to go and fill the boots and rape and pillage other way across Duskendale? And it turns out the mountain was knocking around and <laughs> absolutely destroyed them. You're saying that that as a plan did was not as straightforward as they might have assumed. You astonish no. me in a country at war. <laughs> it's amazing. It's like saying, do you know what, lads? Um, you've uh, you've worked hard. And here's a football. Go off and have a game. No, I mean, the only ground yeah. to play on is that minefield, but I'm sure you'll be fine. No, just go, go on, carry on. Bang. Yeah. Oh. Do you know what I mean? So it's it's another disaster in the north for, for Rob, isn't it, yeah. it seems? Because uh, they are two important... The, the Tall Hearts and the Glovers were had been sent off. Look, the Tall Hearts are, look like they've been wiped out and the Glovers are in sort of hasty retreat. Yeah. And their retreat seems to have been cut off by another army, so... That doesn't look good either. Mm. Uh, Ballon Greyjoy has offered an alliance uh, to. He says, "I'll to, to, to the Lannisters." Yeah, I was going to say, "Not to Rob, presumably." No, no, <laughs> and Tywin's response is to to not give any response to yeah. it and wait to see if a better opportunity presents itself. Yeah, um, which is which is an interesting non-action from from Tywin, someone who's normally very decisive. It's hard to argue with his reasoning, though, isn't it? You know... Yeah, he's... Yeah. You know, he's saying, well, he can't do a deal with anybody else. He's scared of us. Let's let him exhaust himself and do it all for free and we don't have to give him anything. Mm. And he's absolutely yeah. right. <laughs> yeah. There's there's a, a plan to, to get... Uh, the, the, the sort of unknown at the moment in this war is uh, is the Vale, where Lysa Arryn is, you know, the Eyrie, yeah. which hasn't declared for anybody yet. Right. And there's a plan to get them on side, and it's it's by sending Littlefinger up there to effectively to marry Lysa Arryn, and Littlefinger says that they've, they've got a history together and uh, she'll be up for that. You can almost hear him rubbing his thighs, can't you? It's like, yeah. do I get to marry her? Oh, yes, come on. It's horrible. <laughs> horrible. Yeah. Um, okay. Repulsive as he is. <laughs> You're about to here. make an excuse for Littlefinger, aren't you? I can sense it. No, I'm just going to, I just wanted to say that um, it's, there's an element of, look, when he gets this and he makes this offer, there are these really high-born and proud lords around the table. I think two of them exchange a look like, I don't like. They don't like the sound of this, yeah. Because this sort of this poor little upstart from a, a crappy part of the fingers in the middle of nowhere in Westeros, who's got no lands or title to his name um, mm. in terms of his birth, wants to become Lord Protector of the Vale, a really, really important, you know, something that would yeah. be above these even these guys sitting on the council. Yeah, and he's allowed to do it because he's got the title of Lord of Harrenhal, which he was given because no one thought he'd actually be able to sit there yeah. so it's kind of an empty title yeah and he's he's managed to sort of climb his way up through sort of getting one over all these people yeah and it just i just got a sense of real sort of working class hero about it as well. <laughs> <laughs> these really high-born aristocratic guys trying to keep this this upstart down and at every turn he gets a drop on them doesn't yeah. he? yeah well there is there, there is definitely you can hear these posh guys kind of muttering behind their glassy smiles whoa new money whoa, whoa vulgar whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> yeah. you know and yeah. um and, and the thing is that usually a good working class hero story kind of tugs at my heartstrings but 
Uh, it's Peter <laughs> Baelish. I'm sorry. If that's a working class hero, <laughs> the working class is in trouble. Yeah. It's funny. Do you remember when he got Lord of Harrenhal mm. reward? And um, then all the people, like there were murmurs of sort of discontent from the lords in the, in the hall then as well. There's always this sense of a lot of people don't like Littlefinger less because of his methods and what he does, which are genuine reasons to not like him. Mm. It's more when it comes to the lords, more about his birth, isn't it? Yeah, and that yeah. they don't believe he deserves to be there. Yeah. Which is yeah. interesting. The new Master of Coin, which is the post that Littlefinger will be vacating, is going to be Tyrion. It's an interesting And he's one. not very happy. Well, and I wonder why. I mean, because Littlefinger managed to turn being Master of Coin into, you know, all of this magnificent kind of soaring success from absolutely nowhere. Like, it's quite a yeah. powerful position to be in, I think, for Tyrion. Mm. But he doesn't seem to be too enamoured of it. I mean, I suppose he's just stopped being the Hand of the King, so anything after that is going to seem a little bit like playing with the sheep and the goats. Um, yeah. But I still think, like, you can make a lot of power that way. Like, you control hmm. Cersei's cash flow for a start. Yeah. I, I think it, it might even be a little a little glimpse of maybe a bit how Tyrion's confidence has been shaken a little bit with his experience. Oh, that's because yeah. it's in, in the series, I'm not sure if this happens later in the book, in the series, um, when Tyrion's given this job by Tywin, uh, and uh, Tywin's quite surprised that Tyrion doesn't like the sound of it. And, and the, the response from Tyrion's quite interesting. He says that, you know, he's grown up as a son of one of the wealthiest lords in the Seven Kingdoms. Mm. And it's given him a good talent for spending money, but not managing it. He's <laughs> never needed to worry about money He's never needed to work before. out where money comes from. Exactly. Yeah, Which kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it really does. Uh, but anyway, for good or ill, he's got that job. Yeah, uh, there, there's probably this ill. About, let's be honest. Yeah, yeah. There's this. There's this mention of these these guys called the Martells coming over from Dawn. I don't really want to get into this just yet because we do hear from them a bit later on, mm. and maybe we can we can cross that bridge when we come to it. It's an extra thing to worry about at the moment. All right, um, I'll take your tip. There are these. Ru- there are these rumours from abroad. Uh, one of a a kraken, a real kraken. Like a, I think it's like a giant squid, isn't it? Yeah, it, um, yeah. It, it's a squid that's sea. got the worst hangover in the world, as I understand it. Yeah, there's rumours of one of them attacking a boat, and there's also rumours of a three-headed dragon being born in Carth, which uh, which sounds like it might have a ring of truth to it. Uh, but this is quite interesting. I wonder about the kraken if this is if this is genuine and if it's this another example of magic seeping back into the world now or whether it could just be bollocks from some sailor but well yeah i mean I, yeah we should never discount the bollocks from some sailor quotient which is going to be quite high isn't it um <laughs> uh when you're dealing with sailors but um but that's that's a very like plausible idea and i think it makes a lot of sense because there's i like cuz i hear it said that like in the real world the um you know the the least explored part of our immediate universe is the deep ocean like we know more about mars really than we do about conditions for life and so on in the bottom of the ocean Mm. so and people do routinely pull up giant squid i mean not like kraken not things that can like digest ships um although i'm certain there are websites that would claim that those exist and they're just being covered up but um but like this like the sea is a great source of mystery 
and it hasn't really been tapped yet. So I would, I'd quite like to see that that sort of come off. I think that could be really interesting. Um, mm. uh, the other thing I think though is um, is that uh, the three headed dragon thing just shows us how stories start, and actually, because um, obviously Daenerys is in Carth with three dragons. And, uh, and I just love seeing how stories change and develop and get manipulated mm. and, and how everybody thinks in terms of stories and myths and legends and so on. Um, in, uh, it would seem across Westeros. So, um, so what could the Kraken be if it's not that? Um, what yeah. do you think? Well, I mean, Tyrion, I mean, whoever gives the, the information, might be Varys, mm. says that it, it isn't metaphorical. Because the only other thing a, a Kraken could be in this is uh, longships from the Iron Islands, because they're known yeah. as the Krakens. Yeah. Uh, but they say, no, it's not. It's a literal, the, the reports are that it's literally a Kraken knocking around. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'd but I don't like know, I don't know that. what else it could be. Yeah, yeah, very odd. Um, there's there's this discussion over what to do with the deserters from the City Watch. Remember when it looked like the castle was going to fall, loads of the City Watch just dropped weapons and ran amok, started looting. Yeah. Um, Cersei wants to execute them out of hand to show what happens if you desert. <laughs> you astonish surprise, me. Surprise, surprise. Yeah. <laughs> T- Tyrion wants to send them to the Wall because... He thinks the wall could do with all the men they can get, even if they are cowards. Mm. Tywin's uh, decision is somewhere in between. He doesn't want to kill them, but he's going to effectively take hammers to the knees to cripple them. So when people in the street see them begging, they see what happens to... They're a, sort of a constant reminder of what happens if you desert, rather than just a short, sharp shock of seeing someone killed. Um, and he also says about this not sending them to the wall, um, it might not be a... He, <laughs> He's so pragmatic even with that. He says it might not be a problem if, if the Night's Watch failed to defend the wall. So what? It just means you have marauding wildlings in the north and it's just another problem for Rob to deal with. It's a very Southerner's mindset, isn't it? That, you know, one hesitates mm. to draw real-world parallels, but that does sort of sound like a London banker going, what the fuck do I care if the economy in Hull is fucked? <laughs> <laughs> Same thing. Um, with just with more zombies, I suppose. Well, yeah, yeah, I suppose because it is technically still part of your kingdom if you claim laying claim to it. Yeah, because uh, Tywin seems to very much see it as just the land of the enemy rather than a his... place that he rules or is is has a responsibility yeah. to look after. Yeah, yeah, which is an interesting approach. Yeah, that's very true. There are these plans for marriages. Uh, so <laughs> I fucking loved this bit, <laughs> the Cersei bit. Yeah, it was great. Sorry, carry on. Yeah, so Cersei is furious because it looks like she's getting married off again, and I don't. I had a bit of sympathy for it because she sort of, when Tywin says you're going to get married again, she's on what she's horrified after yeah. what's happened to her last time when she was married to this hulking brute of a guy who hated her. Mm. It's going to happen again, mm. and she's either got um, to marry this guy. She's got to marry Balin Greyjoy, who we've seen as a similarly <laughs> miserable son of a bitch, or um, or Willis Tyrell, who seems a quite a nice guy. And I, uh, I, I worry for him if she ends up over in oh, over God, in High can you Imagine, but she doesn't want to do either. But timing basically says you're going to have to do one or the other. Yeah, yeah. What did you make of it? Oh uh, well, I mean, uh, clearly, uh, my response to Cersei has been negative for so long that I've lost all human kindness. 
and I'm just like, marry to Greyjoy. Get her on an, an iron island, go on. Send her off there on a boat. Never to darken our doors again. Um, uh, actually, actually, the, no, the other interesting thing about this scheme is, though, like marrying her to Willis Terrell would be marrying her to her daughter-in-law's brother. So she would mm. be her daughter's mother-in-law and sister-in-law. She'd yeah. be Marjorie's daughter-in-law and sister-in-law at the same time, wouldn't she? Only in the Lannisters. Only the Lannisters, <laughs> exactly. I mean, you could almost imagine Tyrion, if you knew about her and Jamie. Uh, sorry, Tywin, if you knew about her and Jamie, leaning over the table and being like, I just thought we'd make it that way because you seem to like to keep it in the family, eh? <laughs> of course, he would never do that. No, no, it's far too humorless. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and that's why I'd make a better Lord of Lannister than uh, than Tywin Lannister. <laughs> Write it down. There's also the plan to marry Tyrion to Sansa. Yeah. Uh, and Tyrion sort of says, Tyrion's a bit, obviously isn't happy about this either and says it's, it's cruel to Sansa mm. when she's already um, faced the prospect of marrying one of her... Uh, one of her, one of the one Lannister. Now she's got in another. Effectively, mm, yeah. um, T- Tywin seems genuinely surprised that Tyrion is unhappy. I think, I think this is actually uh, obviously it's strategically important because Tywin wants to get a, some kind of claim to the North. But he's chosen Tyrion basically as a reward for Blackwater because he said you can't have Casterly Rock. But he's sort of giving him this as a. He's saying you know one day you could be. The Lord of Winterfell, yeah, you know, uh, protector of the North, and it's you know it's it's a really high honor, yeah, and it's being offered to him by and Tywin thinks this is I think Tywin expects Tyrion to turn around and be all grateful about it. Like, oh, look at what you're doing for me. Yeah, Yeah. it just shows the disconnect between the two, I suppose. Yeah, and I think I mean Tywin can be forgiven here for thinking he's making a really lovely gesture, but he's just making it in a completely different universe than the one that Tyrion's, isn't he? Um, Because. Tyrion's, you know, Tyrion's, one of Tyrion's guiding principles is that he really cares about the misfortune of people who have been dicked around. And if any, if ever there's been anybody dicked around, um, it's Sansa, right? And so you're like, you're with Tyrion because you don't want to see them, even though you quite like her now and you quite like him, you, you still don't want to see them get married because that would be like a, you know, that would allow the Lannisters more of a grip and you really, it's interesting because you start to have these emotional responses based on the politics of the situation, which I think doesn't necessarily come naturally mm. to most people. Yeah, it's a good point. And um, the, this this whole point of giving... I mean, it's, it's, Tywin says to Tyrion that he's tried in the past on numerous occasions to get Tyrion hmm. married and he's failed because no one will take him because he's a dwarf. Yeah. And obviously that's terrible for Tyrion to hear. Um, and it's really cruel. It just shows it isn't just Tywin who is particularly cruel to Tyrion because of who he is. It's it's the kind of prevailing mood across the whole of this of this society, isn't it? Mm. And um, and you can imagine for someone as proud as Tywin, just what sort of a what sort of a kick in the balls that would be every single yeah. time someone refused that one of his sons, yeah. um, even when they were sort of of lower rank mm. to him. Uh, I mean. Limited sympathy for Tywin compared to the poor guy who is actually having to inhabit the body of the <laughs> person who's being kicked around and rejected left, right, and centre. But still, it's a it's an interesting complex dynamic, there, isn't it? Yeah, 
Yeah, very, very much. And uh, and this is one of the few upsides of the uh, of the the uh, kings. You know, coming back to this king's council thing again and seeing it all happen again is that you're like, this has got legs. This this interaction, this relationship, Tywin mm. and Tyrion having to work in close quarters um, is going to be mm. a really interesting interaction. Yeah, another big thing for for Tyrion marrying Sansa, as we said, it puts him in line and his kids in line to inherit the North. But only if uh, only if something happens to Rob, because Rob is obviously the the king, and he might get an heir any moment. And if he has a son, then then all bets are off. And it doesn't matter what happens mm. to Sansa. Uh, Tywin seems seems singularly unconcerned about that. Um, and and I think it's I mean he he mentions that Rob he's got news of Rob marrying this Jane Westerling who is actually one of what is she belongs to the house of one of a one of Lannister one of Tywin's bannermen and he doesn't seem massively concerned about the fact that he's been betrayed by them and you just get the feeling that Tywin is is thinking that Rob's fortunes are on the wane now. The, he's obviously lost the phrase. The, the, all that's gone down in Duskendale with the tall hearts and the glovers. And it feels like the noose is beginning to tighten mm. on Rob and the battle is shifting towards yeah. Tywin. And this is why he's starting to make his plans about what's going to happen once mm. he wins, such as his confidence. Yeah, and he's a canny kind of commander and canny commanders do that sort of thing. Um, but he's very confident. Like... Mm. Yeah, I'm, well, I mean, Tywin Lannister knows more about warfare than I do. Um, uh, but, like, obviously I'm still hoping Rob gets through it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, don't count your chickens. Mr. Do not Lannister. count your chickens, and, Mr. And also, Lannister. Also, <laughs> Mr. Lannister. Mr. Lannister. <laughs> also, but with, I think almost as much as he was overconfidence about winning the war... There's also the how relaxed he is about this betrayal. How one of his one of his bannermen's kids has just married his his enemy, and there's this really interesting reminiscence from Tyrion about how ruthless Tywin has been with other members of other other bannermen who have betrayed him in the past. There was this uh, there were these uh, this group called the Reigns of Castamere, and they. Uh, rose up against the Lannisters and Tywin killed everybody in that house and extinguished the line as a punishment. And apparently when another house thought about sort of talking back to Tywin, all he did was uh, send a a musician uh, to, to play this song called The Reigns of Castamere, which is about how sort of Tywin dealt with the last person who crossed him. And they they got back in line straight away just from hearing the song. <laughs> it just shows how ruthless he is normally. And again, how much of a surprise it is that he's letting this. It seems like he's going to let this slide. I mean, I, yeah, I think like this has a massive question mark over it for me. Um, but it's a question mark which kind of bodes well either way because either there's lots of plot to come. He's got a reason for this that we don't know about, and there's plot afoot, or. Mm. He's no reason for doing this. He's being overconfident. He's about to fall flat on his ass, and that's quite nice as well. Yeah, hopefully it's the latter. That would be amazing. Hopefully the latter, indeed. Uh, let's check in with Rob then. Let's go to Caitlin. Right. Or Catelyn. And, oh no, uh, 
whenever we whenever we go back to Riverrun, something else, some more shit has hit the fan, and this time's no different. Yeah. Because two Lannister squires, um, teen, two young young teenagers, some two boys have been killed in the cells. Mm. Um, they were captured at the Whispering Wood, and they were being kept prisoner, and now they're dead. And it's it's Karstark. He's effectively kind of mute. It's not open mutiny, but I mean, he's, he's not he's, far off. He's though. Burst into, yeah, he's killed two Tully guardsmen, mm. broken into the cells, and and murdered these two these two boys. Yeah, and I don't know what is it? this is a a real. I don't know. It's a real shock. I, I didn't think uh, angry as Karstark was. I don't think he was going to go this far. Yeah. Well, and we. I mean, we've no basis for feeling that way, have we? Though, really, because we haven't really seen what Karstark's likely to respond like. Um, but mm. it's clear where we have imagined a kind of stoic man of the north doing his duty and sticking to honour. What we've actually got is a sort of crime of passion type, who's just sort of like, I just, I can't take it anymore. Everybody dies. Um, yeah. and, um, and, you know, the, the victims of it are these two small kids. And, and this whole bit gave me the strongest feeling, more than anything else, of like things falling apart. Like, you yeah. know, you've, you've had this kind of tactical problem that, that Rob's got with the fact that he's now trying to retake the north through all alleyways that are now closed to him. And, um, he's gone and married the wrong person and he's fucked his diplomacy. And then, you've got this thing where one of his biggest, closest allies betrays him. Mm. Um, and and he's, you know, he's got to deal with it in this incredibly ruthless way. And it's like, you know, just everything is going wrong for Rob at this point. Yeah. I think the very fact that Karstark has done this shows how Rob's losing his grip on power and he's yeah. almost losing the respect of some of his men as well. Yeah. I mean, uh, when, when Karstark's brought before Rob... Uh, he he says, you know, have you forgotten that you're supposed to kill Lannisters, not free them? Yeah. And it's you know, you, you know, I'm being judged for doing what I'm supposed to do, which is kill Lannisters. Yeah. And when when he, I think he calls the king boy as well, and then the great John sort of punches him. Yeah. And um, well, that was Rob great said, to see, when, wasn't it? Like just yeah, the great yeah. John having been this kind of like. Like, by turns, gregarious, terrifying, uncontrollable presence, just without even blinking, totals this guy. And you're like, mm. that's exactly the right response. I wonder I wonder how many other people are going to have that kind of unequivocal support for Rob, because I bet it's not many. It, yeah, he seems to be... Str- and and the thing is, when Karstak get when that happens, and then Rob says, let me deal with him, Karstak's response is... Uh, he says, "Yeah, um, leave me to the king. He means to give me a scolding before he forgives me. He's he's that's that's how you deal with that's how he deals with treason. This king in the north, and then he calls him the king who lost the north. He's doing everything he can to get himself. Killed I was going to say that he just, he just does. He doesn't give a single solitary shit about staying alive, does he? And he wants to go out no. in the most kind of. He's almost like he's trying to do a very aristocratic version of suicide by cop." You know, where people kind of go out and, and commit horrible crimes in, in the States where they end up getting shot for them just by the police. Um, mm. Exactly that. Exactly that, you know? Yeah, it's all set to this backdrop of sort of thunder and lightning as well and a hail and a, a sort of heavy thunderstorm. Mm. And it just, it all feels like things things coming apart at the seams for Rob, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And 
Yeah, I mean, there is this... The reason Karstark has done this, there is obviously the fact that Jamie's been released mm. and, he's fu- and that was his chance at vengeance. Yeah. Uh, but I think the other reason that isn't given... that Things that, that isn't said but is also in the background is this marriage of to, to Jane Westerling and the fact the phrase have gone. Yeah. And I think from like a Karstark point of view, it's just another mistake too many. Yeah. That it's this, it's this boy who's... He, he, I think that the big problem with that marriage of Rob's is it really shows him up to be a teenage boy. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. I think, and I think a few of these lords, especially someone like Karstark, is realising that again. Yeah. And, and he built... It's a mate... Back in... In the north, when he pulled all these people together, he managed to shed that image, didn't he, and become a king. Yeah. And I just think almost as much as losing those, you know, the cavalry and the swordsmen for, to the of, that he would have had from the phrase, mm. it's the fact that his reputation has taken such a knock because he's basically gone all sort of star-crossed and married someone yeah. because he, he he's fallen in love with yeah. them in a real sort of teenage boy kind of way. Mm-hmm. And it's just... I think that that has has really damaged him. Yeah, and and this is and it leads to some of these problems like this here. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right, and um and you you know you kind of can't see it getting any better because he's he's not just made a couple of missteps like he's really tangled himself up, you know he's really screwed himself over. Hmm. So um, yeah, it's not looking good for the boy wolf, is it? His way out with Karstark, his decision is to, to execute him. Edmure wants to imprison him mm. and say, and basically say, because there's this guy, Harry and Karstark, who's over with the Boltons, mm. um, who commands a load of footmen at the moment, and they want to at least keep some of the Karstarks on side. And he says, if you, if you hold, hold uh, Lord Karstark and say no, no harm will come to him as long as you continue to obey mm. me, then you at least keep some of the men because most of them have already ridden off and have started <laughs> yeah. searching for Jamie Lannister again. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. What did you make of this decision of Rob's to, to execute him? I thought he had no choice. And I thought, you know, the way you the way you correct an impression that you are not the kind of stern but fair king that you need to be if people are going to stick with you is by doing things like this. So mm-hmm. he does. So I think it was unavoidable for him. I think, you know, I'm sure he wishes that he didn't have to do it, but he, I think he's got very good instincts here and in that he knows that if he does anything else, then the rest of his army will disappear by tomorrow morning. Yeah. You know? Yeah. He needs to be, he needs to be shown to be ruthless. Yeah, exactly. Especially considering the accusations that Carstack's been shouting at him in front of everybody yeah. in the throne room. What an idiot. <laughs> but I mean, at its heart, as, as he's doing it, you're thinking it's still, this is, a, I mean, in Karstak says this before he dies, I was, you know, I fought with you in this, this battle, this battle, this battle. Yeah. And, you know, we're, it's a terrible crime to kill a member of your kin. And the Karstaks are practically relatives to yeah. the Starks. The, the sort of the lines can be traced back together. Yeah. And it just, it feels like he's, he's killing a real close, a former really close ally. Yeah. And it's got to, yeah, it's got to hurt that. It really it? has, but... He's no choice, you know, mm. just none. And it ends with Karstak saying, kill me and be cursed, you are no king of mine. Well, he knows what he wanted, mm. um, yeah. you know, and and I wonder, you know, I wonder if this will prey on Rob's mind because this is, either way, it's a really serious loss. Bad shit going down. So Rob's got to think of what to do next. And uh, he he wants to, obviously he needs to get back north. He, the only way through seems to be through Mount Kalim. Mm. 
um, which is going to be this very costly and difficult battle, which he's going to need extra men for. So he's got to try and make amends with the phrase somehow to get the men. Hmm. The only other the only other road open to him would have been through the Vale to march basically all the way east, go in, go past uh, the Erie, mm. and get some boats from there and sail around. Mm. But um, Lysa Iron isn't even going to allow him to do that. She's not replying to any of the sort of any of the ravens that are being sent to her, and she's obviously doesn't want any part of the war at all. Not even allowing an army passage through. Her lands, yeah, which seems a a singular, a seems it seems a particularly mean spirited thing to do to someone who's you know your, your own nephew. Yeah, yeah. I wonder what's going on there. Is there? I mean, is there mm. something going on that we haven't heard about, or you know? Well, it's, I mean, we're only in the last chapter we had the Lannisters and and the uh, talking about how they want to get some kind of alliance with with Lysa. So it's obvious she isn't on their side yet. Yeah, and she's obviously isn't on Rob's side. So I think she's just genuinely just neutral. Or, or mental would be a more pejorative way of yeah, saying yeah, that. You know, we've yeah. seen that she is more than a little bit unhinged. Mind you, we saw that a book and a half ago. So, you know, maybe, maybe she's recuperated. Maybe she started doing Pilates, really chilled out. But um, I, I doubt it. <laughs> it's possible. It, it is possible. It's an outside chance. We can describe it. But it's <laughs> Medieval Pilates. <possible>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the chapter ends with uh, uh, Jean Westerling. Uh, Rob's wife coming in to speak to Catelyn mm. to say she doesn't know how to cheer him up because mm. uh, he's really obviously disconsolate now and Catelyn basically says the best way to do it is give him an heir mm. so get yourself pregnant <laughs> and she she says that her mum's been making her up this special sort of cocktail to help her and she's trying to she's doing it the best of, you know she's, she's working as quick as she can yeah. <laughs> And, uh, and we'll see what happens. But that would that would make things easier, wouldn't it, for Rob if he had an heir? Yeah, that's very true. Yeah, um, and uh, and I like the um, uh, I I do like the sort of the medieval um, candor of this conversation. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Sort of like you need to have sex. I'm having sex. You need to have sex. I'm having sex. Like just kind of like, and it's such a weird thing to visualize, isn't it? Like a like a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law having this conversation, and it being the most yeah. important thing they can talk about. Very weird. Um, <laughs> although, I mean, though I agree that it would make things easier for Rob if he had an heir, because then you've got a legit line of succession and so on, and you know you don't have to worry about your brothers running around and stuff. Um, he's not exactly in a safe position, is he? So if he has a baby in in the field of battle, that's um. It's not a lock, is it? You know, like it's no, you know, the, in a way, that's more of a liability. But there are safe places to send that baby, and you you wouldn't keep them on the front line, so you'd send them to your <laughs> safest part. So I mean, Riverrun isn't exactly under threat at the moment, or maybe even somewhere like I don't know. I think north of that is this place called Seaguard, where the, the Malisters, are this particularly hardy bunch who fight for the uh, who fight for the Tullys, so you could stick him there. Or it just means that. Um, if for whatever reason something happens to Rob, it's not over for the for the Starks because uh, they've got some. Because because if something happens to Rob at this stage, um, Tywin's right in thinking Sansa's the next step. You know there isn't anyone who can legitimately pick up or, or you know take Rob's crown mm. who's who's on Rob's side. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That is very true. Although I I think in assuming that they wouldn't keep the baby on the front lines, that you're you're 
you're perhaps betraying yourself not to be a true northerner. Because I have a sense that if you suggested that to the great John, he'd be like, listen, if he can suck, he can fight. Put a little sword in his hand, <laughs> wave him at somebody. <laughs> Possibly. Possibly. Let's see where, let's see where it goes. Um, next up is Jamie. Right. And Jamie and Brienne have arrived at Maidenpool. And this is... I like this little touch... This is actually there is a pool here, surprisingly enough, mm. at Maidenpool, and it's where the legend of this Florian and Jonquil oh, yeah. comes from. It's great. So it's where you know the Dantos stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. This weird kind of appeal seduction via fairy tale that Sir Dantos is trying on on Sansa. Um, yeah, you know, it's a legit fairy tale, um, and it's quite it's quite stark that the the pool where Florian first met Jonquil, where she bathed in, um, is now green and chokes with corpses. Mm. Um, such as the such as the, the sort of the state of the uh, the fighting and the and the ravages of war around here. Yeah, yeah. Ja- uh, we have this little internal monologue for Jamie, where he's thinking about what's going to happen next, and he's dreaming of marrying Cersei. He thinks that they could get away with this now. Oh, it's touching um, and romantic. No, no, hang on. No, she's his fucking sister. <laughs> um, yeah, and it, is it even remotely plausible this that they, that that they could swing this that he could actually end up doing it? Given that his dad flies off the handle because their younger brother has been known to sleep with prostitutes. <laughs> It does seem to me a bit like Tywin Lannister may not be the one to listen to the young lovers and let them have their disgusting way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I think you're probably right. Yeah. I think, like, but it's, I mean, it's so weird because Jamie, in all other respects, is this kind of extremely confident and presumably, therefore, very canny um, and intelligent individual um, who's really good at fighting, you know, in a way, the king of all he surveys. But he carries a torch for his sister. And just doesn't care, and like is is even willing to kind of entertain these sort of vague just seventeen fantasies about them, and 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 it's just like Jamie, it's not going to happen, mate. You're wrong. I mean, wrong <laughs> with like nine O's in the middle, mate. You just let it go. <laughs> um, now there's this. His thoughts are interrupted by this ambush. Good, because I, I, di- I didn't really want to read any more about his his yeah. private reflections on his sister. <laughs> yeah. So there are these bandits, uh, these archers, who ambush them. And Sir Cleos, poor old Sir Cleos Frey, poor old cowardly Sir Cleos Frey, is killed um, in this ambush. Sir Cleos is killed. They manage to chase off these people, these archers. And then they find Sir body, mm. and Jamie takes Sir his sword, and so a sword fight begins between Jamie and Brienne. Jamie just basically wants to kill her and make his own way away now. Yeah. And for all the sort of, there's sometimes there's been a bit of a sort of an odd couple relationship between these two, and it's set, set felt quite friendly. Mm. At the heart of it, Jamie still wants to kill her. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Make no mistake yeah, about yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. And Jamie thinks he's going to win easily. And be it his uh, time in the dungeon or the fact he's having to fight with his hands 
like uh, chained together, or the fact he's underestimated Brienne. But he doesn't have all it all his own way. He starts off pretty well, mm. but he tires quickly, and Brienne ends up matching him and, and actually being stronger than him. Brilliant. And they end up sort of fighting in this shallow stream. It's quite it's a great sort of dis, uh, description of a sword fight, actually. Yeah, um, particularly how long it goes on for. Because in TV series yeah. and stuff, you don't have how long fights go on for. And I suspect if you tried to have a really long sword fight like this, it would end up feeling a little bit Monty Python, wouldn't it? Um, yeah, yeah. Whereas, actually, I think this is really evocative of the kind of, like, the massive risk you take in in starting a sword fight like this to the death. Because you're just saying, yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to last longer than you. And you can yeah. go on for a long time waving around these massive pieces of steel, and it's quite frightening. Yeah. They, they end up in this shallow stream fighting, um, almost like hand-to-hand, mm. and the brave companions come across them, which is this uh, rather untrustworthy group who used to fight for the Lannisters and have now switched allegiances and uh, are fighting for the Stark. This is, these are the ones called the, the Bloody Mummers, isn't it? Yeah, right. yeah. And they come across that they basically capture Jamie and Brienne. Jamie thinks this is a good news at first because he thinks great that he knows them as Lannister sort of Lannister attack dogs. Yeah. But it turns out ah they have switched sides to the Starks. It's great seeing the the, the ground move under Jamie's feet, isn't it? Because he he snaps straight mm. into entitled um, city boy mode of kind of like oh you work for my father fabulous now what I'll be yeah. having is the food and the drink and this woman killed and uh, take yeah. these chains <laughs> off and I'll have this woman killed and uh, yeah. and bring me a Lamborghini you know and um, <laughs> and then they're all like ah uh, no and it's just great yeah. <laughs> and also even when he even when he finds out that you know, that they're now working for the Starks. He sort of rides up to Urswick, who's the guy who's caught him, and starts going, you know, so uh, Castle Rock's pretty rich. I don't know if you've heard. So uh, <laughs> if you want to take me over there. And Urswick just sort of leans over and slaps Jamie across the face really casually. Yeah. And that really shocks him because Jamie realises that this guy isn't afraid of him. And Jamie's always assumed that everybody's afraid of him yeah. um, in the past, unless they're Lannisters. Yeah. And this is a real sort of bump back down to earth as well, isn't it? And again, you love to see it. (laughs) Like, Jamie's Mm. been asking for this. Um, Particularly when we've just kind of had it reinforced for us in this last sword fight that he is the bad everybody says he is. Uh, Whereas previously, you know, you kind of, it was part of his myth, but you'd never really seen it happen. You just knew that he was very, very, um, very, very smart and had a lot of people that would fight for him. And here you see that actually, no, he is himself a badass. Um, and and so you have oh, this yeah. sense of like being a little bit frightened of him again, and then there's just this kind of languorous wallop on the chops, and it just takes all of the blood out of him. And it's, I mean, it is really kind of it's fascinating to see because suddenly everything's up in the air. You're dealing with the bloody mummers. Like who who knows what's going to come? I think it is it is hard to overstate just how well Jamie did in that sword fight. If you think about it, because he has spent weeks in a dungeon getting weaker and weaker and weaker being hardly fed anything um he's he's got his hands chained together so he can't even move mm. freely and he's up against Brienne who if you remember won that melee in uh, uh when um, yeah, she was yeah. with Renly she was when she was introduced to us she she was basically the best swordsman out of all of the this massive army yeah. so he really did. You really do get a sense of the power of the guy and the skill of him. If he, even when he's 
not exactly match fit and chained together, he can still hold his own against someone like Brienne. Yeah, it's um, it's the sort of thing um, which nowadays you would you would televise and sell tickets for, wouldn't you? Pay per view. Um, you know, the two of the best fighters in the entire kingdom fighting each other, but here it happens around trees and through streams and for hours at a time. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, he's finally brought before the leader of the Bloody Mummers or the Brave Companions, um, called Vargo Holt, who's this guy who speaks with a sort of hilarious list. He's such and, a cheap uh, he gag, isn't he? It? Refers to him as. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's <laughs> Kingslayer. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think the, the funny thing is about him, he, he speaks like that, Kingslayer, but he, he's also, the way he speaks is really like um, Lord, like, like, like a sort of hammy lordly as well. <laughs> so he's like, Kingslayer, bring him before me. <laughs> <laughs> you have come to this, my hall of residence. <laughs> yeah. Um, and... Jamie again tries to sort of talk his way out of the situation and he ends up being sort of pulled down onto the floor and they pull his arms out in front of him mm. and then this 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 Dothraki who's with the bloody mummers pulls out his curved sword mm. and brings it down and Jamie screams um is this Jamie dead it's Jamie, at the very least, Jamie near-death experience number two after Caitlin advancing on him with a sword. Yeah, that's true. And this one has definitely implies more pain being involved. Mm. Um, yeah, it's a, whatever it is, it's a turnaround. And I did like the way that it still has, in the second to last paragraph, as Jamie being very arrogant and like, I'm not going to scream. They won't make me scream. Mm. They're just trying to make me scream. And then he screams. And so whatever it is, it's big enough that it's taken all of his bravado out of him in a single moment. Mm. And, um, yeah, like, well, well, we shall, we will see what it is and what has happened, presumably in the next bit, if he's still alive. If not, this yeah. is just the biggest letdown in the world because you're never going to know unless Brienne suddenly becomes a point of view character. It's like, <laughs> what? Yeah. <laughs> uh, next up is Aya. And uh, we hear about songs here. I is on her travels with uh, with the. Uh, it's basically the Brotherhood Without Banners, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Tom Seven Streams and Lem Lemon Cloak and all these guys. Mm. Um, the the come across this bridge uh, and this old knight who who held this bridge against Sir Maynard back in the day, and that's all he ever talks about now. Mm. And no one knows what he's going on about. And it's interesting. I just like this because Tom Seven Streams, who's the singer, says that you know it's a shame that this this Semenard guy never had a singer in his retinue because then everyone would know sort of the great deeds of this night. No one remembers it now because no one wrote a song about it, basically. <laughs> it's great, isn't it? Even in even in a faux medieval fantasy world, freelancers are still always hustling. <laughs> hey, lads, do you, know what, do you know what the tragedy of him is? Do you know what it is? <laughs> never hired me. Mm? Mm? I'll teach him. Yeah. You should all learn yeah. his lesson. <laughs> <laughs> One of the songs that Tom has written... And, and it's the reason why he might not be welcome back at River Run, is he he wrote a song about Edmure being uh, the floppy fish because of his his trouble he had with a uh, with a prostitute. <laughs> he was too drunk to sort of get it up, and uh, Tom wrote a song about it. <laughs> it's just a, it's just another kick in the balls for Edmure, isn't it? <laughs> it is. He, he's slowly becoming for for a, for a powerful lord. He's very very well quite quickly now. I think becoming just the biggest sad sack. You know, just whenever whenever anybody talks about him, you're just like, oh yeah, Edmore. Wow, wow, wow. 
Yeah. Uh, we hear more tales about Lord Berwick, um, how he he's being hung, he's been stabbed in the eye. Um, obviously, we, there was that lance that ended up in his stomach um, when he, when they were first attacked by the mountain uh, when Berwick was serving Lord Stark. Um, it's a bit strange, this, isn't it? Beric um, seems to be almost invincible. <laughs> he keeps hmm. coming back for more, no matter what happens to him. He's like the uh, the Black Knight in the uh, Monty Python sketch. Well, he is, but he, but without the insane delusion, because he actually still has all of his arms and legs attached. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I like the idea of him being like a slightly more clued up version of it, like a Black Knight with a reason to boast. <laughs> come on then I'll have you what you've got an arm off yeah but it'll come back in a second you'll see <laughs> <laughs> so yeah Beric seems very difficult to kill mm. and um, I think that's adding to his legend isn't it the fact that he's come close to death quite a few times mm. and uh, survived yeah uh, they, they go up to somewhere called High Heart which is a this it's this hill with 12 I think it's 12 weirwood stumps around so there used to be 12 big trees there yeah. and there's just the stumps remain and they meet this little old woman mm. who Aya wonders whether she's a child of the forest and you think possibly if those kind of think people exist yeah she's supposed to have these sort of visions of the future and stuff like that mm. And uh, it was kind of creepy, wasn't it, this? It was. And uh, again, it's a good example of George Martin doing something that's very classical, fairy tale fantasy, but doing it in a way that bore the shit out of you. And this is the mm. ancient, wrinkly, crone witch woman that you meet in the woods. Um yeah. and, um, and it's done quite well. Although she doesn't, she hasn't so much seen the future as she has seen the recent present. Like, um, yeah. Uh, you know where she's because she's. I forget the examples that she uses, but she talks about things that I've, we have seen in like previous chapters have occurred, mm. and um, uh, and so she's she's less of like a, a a fortune teller, a soothsayer, and more of just like a sort of a, well. Once again, it's it's another approach to medieval twenty four hour news, isn't it? Just get somebody who's psychically inclined mm. and get them to tell you their dreams. This just in. Yeah. This this just in. I've got a pounding headache. And uh, a leopard covered in custard is going to come downstairs and eat me nan. Hang on a second. That one might be just, yeah, tell you what. Technical problems. Put up, put up the test cards. Yeah. <laughs> shouldn't, have eaten that tri- shouldn't have eaten that cheese yeah, last night. <laughs> listen, you know that when you eat cheese, the nine o'clock bulletin in the morning is a fucking shambles. So knock it on the head. <laughs> um. After their encounter with this weird, semi-psychic, semi-present telling woman, um, they move on to Acorn Hall, which is this, it's, it's quite a nice uh, just respite from the horrors of war. This It seems like a, it's still a normal functioning mm. place with a, run by quite a, nice lady, uh, quite a nice lady called Lady Smallwood. Mm. Uh, just a little, little mention, she must be there... That first ranger who ended up being killed by a bear, Thorin Smallwood, he must have come oh, from around yeah. here. yeah, there it is. And yeah. she, she does a lot to redeem the Smallwood name because she's quite nice, isn't she? Yeah, I love, I love those little connections mm. that you just come across every so often because of the names. Mm. Uh, but yeah, so so they, they go in there and Arya gets sort of washed and, and redressed as a girl yeah. uh, briefly. She doesn't enjoy it. <laughs> it's, funny, it's funny when, um, when Lady uh, Smallwood takes... Aya to one side and has a chat of it with her in a like a, a really nice sort of 
mother motherly sort of way, mm. which Aya's not experienced for a while. She asks Aya what she likes to do, and Aya says needlework. <laughs> and uh, the response the response is very restful, isn't it? Well, said Aya, not the way I do it. She's <laughs> <laughs> quite funny. She's got banter. She's not got anything else. No family left, but she's got banter. Yeah. Later on here, Aya and Gendry have a bit of a play fight as well. Mm. And um, they're really getting quite close, these two, aren't they? Yeah. And um, and I have to say, during this bit, I was a bit like, George, surely you're not going there, are you? She's 10. <laughs> like, don't. Like, no, don't. But and, 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 of course, actually, that's really clever on his part because he wants me to think that and then to show, actually, that there are other types of relationship in this book than... Mm. Um, antagonistic, honor bound, or um, repressed, repressedly sexual. Mm. You know, and it, and you know whatever else it is. This is just two kids. Do you know what I mean? Like mm. two two friends wrestling. Like it's just you know. I mean, yeah. I'm not going to deny the sexual undercurrent of it, but I'm glad he didn't take it any further because that would have been horrible. <laughs> um, yeah, but yeah. do you know what? It's just flirting. It's flirting. Like you know, I suppose in this world, a ten year old is like a teenager, so it's like teenagers flirting. You know. Um, and, um, and yeah, like nicely done for all of that, actually, um, which I was quite surprised by. Yeah. It feels like just a, a step, like a, just a brief window of I being able to experience a bit of normality, yeah. just mucking about with a friend and being treated kindly by this sort of motherly woman. Mm. And as she's sent off, um, as sort of Lady, uh, Lady Smallwood sends it, like packs her off in a way and she says, you know, look after yourself. Mm-hmm. It just it was a it was quite a surprisingly um I don't know, surprisingly gentle scene this, wasn't it? It was, yeah. And um and, and it had a real this um uh Lady Smallwood is even better, um, as well as being gentle. She's uh she's quite witty really, isn't she? Um like there's a mm. couple of moments where I can't remember if she's if it's actually in the scene or if she's just telling the story of like mouthing off at some people who came and tried to try to take their take this particular stronghold. And just sort of, oh yeah, oh I think it's I think it's Carstarks. Is it Carstarks? Oh, even better. I think it's Carstarks because it's, it's, she's, she says it's Northmen yeah. with a sun crest on their uh, on the oh, badges, right, which it, then, is eh? what the Carstarks were. So I think they're after Jamie. It's like the the sort of various parties that have left Riverrun and have now just gone on the rampage trying to find Jamie yeah, Lannister. Yeah, yeah. I forget the dialogue though. Can you remember? Like she uh, she she kind of you know she leans over the over the you know she sort of she sort of puts them in their place and like smacks them down with with sheer verbal dexterity and and I love to see that like wit passing for a sword it's great yeah I can't, I'm not, not sure what page but I, I think I remember it's something about like they ask is, is, the, is Jamie Lannister in there and she says like he's up in my room he's too tight yeah to come that's down. great <laughs> which is a way of saying fuck off <laughs> Yeah, it's worth saying, of course he's fucking not. (laughs) (laughs) It's Jamie Lannister. Yeah, Yeah, you're right. It's such a good line, you know, (laughs) just like... (laughs) And you can see the withering look on her face as well, can't you? It's like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, he's in my bed. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Shall we move on to the last chapter for today, which is about Daenerys? Mm. And she is having a look at these. She's shopping for. She's shop. Hang on, sorry. She's shopping for slaves. Easy for you to say. Um, <laughs> on the seashore. <laughs> she's she's shopping for slaves on the seashore, and uh, the seashore town of Port. I think Astapor. They all, they all sort of blend into one. These slave cities. There are a few they of do, them. Uh, yeah. 
I, I'm, glad, I'm glad you on. feel that way as well, actually, because she, the, the Daenerys stuff has been so separate from the rest mm. of the from the rest of the plot for so long that it's, it does feel just like an endless parade of different brutal cities on the other mm. side of the world where she struggles but then gets by because she's got her dragons. Mm. And this is Astapor that she's at at the moment. Yeah, she, she's been shown these slaves by this guy called Krasnis Monaklos, and he he speaks High Valyrian, I think, which is sort of a, a really unusual language. And Daenerys speaks it as well, but she's letting on that she doesn't. And it's quite... We get this kind of bits of comedy because he keeps insulting her, assuming she doesn't know what he's saying, and yeah. she does. Yeah. Um, which is quite good. Yeah. we. I mean, it's, it's quite a good comic relief from the sort of unending misery of what is the description of these unsullied warriors and yeah. how they're sort of created. They're basically these utterly loyal, uh, almost machines of people, really, yeah. who have had all the sort of humanity knocked out of them. They actually drink this potion, which makes them, which dulls their nerves and dulls their senses. Yeah. And and also their sort of humanistic t- tendencies or their decencies have been kicked yeah. out of them. Yeah. Uh, various things. I mean, for there are two things that they've got to do. One is, well, one is they've got to learn to fight and only a third of them make it, so it's particularly harsh. They're also told to go into a, a market on the sort of graduation day, find a, a newborn baby and kill it. Yeah. Um, and also they're given this little puppy when they first sort of, when they're first cut, when they first become eunuchs. Yeah. And they raise this puppy up, up to a certain age and then they've got to strangle that as well. Um, uh, it's, you know, it's almost like, grim. I mean, so the baby thing is, is obviously horrendous and it is mm. like, it is, is a, is a violent image. The puppy thing is like, he's gone, okay, now, how can I make it very clear that these people are total bastards? Wow, raising slaves. <laughs> right, raising slaves. I mean, you know, everybody knows it's bad, but it's a, it's a bit workaday, a bit common. Um, <laughs> should I do? I'll have them raised, drugged, turned into the ultimate soulless warriors, take their names mm. away. Puppies, that's it. On their first birthday after this happens, they have to kill a puppy. <laughs> I mean, to, to give... An example of just how how just to give an example of just how loyal these uh, these people are and how they'll just obey you, whatever these unsullied. Uh, Krasno, whatever he's called, does a a bit of nipple slaying. He he, he gets the gets the guy to walk one of the guys to walk out in front of him, takes his shirt off and, and basically chops one of his nipples off and he doesn't react. Mm. And it just shows just how I mean, oh, it's, oh it makes me wince just talking about it. Hey, and, um, yeah. And the idea of them not reacting as well. I mean, and this mm. is this is actually a scene that was almost made for TV, wasn't it? Because when they do it in the TV series, it's horrifying. Oh, yeah. But um, it's like it's it's so visceral. It's completely unforgettable image. Mm. Um, and yeah, it tells you really gets you back on side with Daenerys, who has become quite distant and is considering buying slaves and you could have thought that she was kind of losing it and losing a certain amount of uh, sympathy and mm. now that's not true yeah um, Arston Whitebeard who she's taken with her 
um, is completely disgusted by all of this, mm. and you can tell he he taps his staff in disgust, like when he's when he's angry all the time. It's a little tick he has, and he's doing this all the way through. And at the end, he actually speaks speaks out in front of everybody and says, "Don't do this. It's an, you know, the slaves are an abomination back in Westeros." And if you he basically says, if you land with a slave army, you'll end, you end up fighting more men than you need to because people will turn against you just simply because you've got a slave army, which mm. makes sense, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, but then Daenerys makes the very good point that she needs an army from somewhere. Mm. So I, you know, yeah, yeah. She says she doesn't want to go and beg for support. Yeah, and this I love this exchange. Arston says <clears throat> um, it's better to be a beggar than a slave, and Daenerys' response is, "There speaks one who's been neither." Yeah, which is which is great, isn't it? Because it really sums it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and that's that's kind of a way that you can see Daenerys really losing it. Um, you know, mm. this kind of this desire not to be a beggar could outweigh the sort of fundamental decency which she has in her character, clearly. But we know not from where. You know, she's been raised mm. by this brother that's horrible um, and and raised as a refugee. Um, uh, in in a in an extremely exploitative kind of circumstances, the examples that she's witnessed have been not positive, and yet she seems to be nice. But you can see this desire not to be a beggar overwhelming that kind of fundamental decency. I'm a bit nervous about it. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, so she she returns to the ship really conflicted, doesn't know what to do, um, and she, I think. We needed to see this from Daenerys, didn't we? She, she can't just accept these and you know, buy these slaves without having any uh, sort of show of conscience. So she's really wrestling with it. Um, and she's got sort of a two people on either, a person on either shoulder, hasn't she? Aston Whitebeard says, don't do it. And Sajora is saying, you've got to do it because this is the sort of safest course open mm-hmm. to you. Um, there's this rather strange interlude with a bit of a, a bit of lady love on the <laughs> ship. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I suppose this is this is also important because it's all about sort of Daenerys' sort of sexual reawakening after uh, after what happened with Khal um, Drogo, yeah. and she sort of really went into herself. And then there's been this there's been a strange dynamic between her and Sajora, mm. and now this just sort of sort of builds on that, doesn't it, and moves that that part of it forward. Yeah. Though it was a bit of a it was a bit strange to this to suddenly happen in the middle of a in the middle of a slave. Yeah, deal. well, because you because your head's in this kind of slave, you know, the the uh, the ethics of slavery and uh, development of Daenerys uh, as a character, and uh, and and actually also this um, uh, Arston fella, uh, you know, who you're still not really certain whether you should trust. Um, mm. and then there's this moment, and you're like, what? <laughs> It's it's a bit yeah. where it felt a little bit. I mean, again, George Martin knows what he's doing, but it did feel a little bit written by written by a fourteen year old boy, you know, like that, which is <laughs> which is a, a charge often levelled unjustly against uh, against fantasy, which is is all written fourteen year old boys, which is bollocks. Mm. Um, but this is one of the passages where that that is an easier supposition to justify than others. Yeah, you're, you're always on. You've always got to be quite brave as an author to sort of go here, haven't yeah. you? Because you do open yourself up to a, a kind of ridicule. Yeah. But um, I think it is. It is also wrapped up in. I kind of. I suppose it makes sense for this to happen here as well because it is wrapped up in this exploring this aspect of slavery and relationships between servants as well. Mm-hmm. Because um, 
the fact that Erie's quite happy to sort of go along and do this more it's not not really out of a sense of attraction just because you know this is just has, sees this as part of her job mm-hmm. and um and again I, I quite like how that's all all wrapped up in it as well yeah um yeah 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 but yeah, yeah uh, it's interesting and insightful but also weird <laughs> yeah I'll, I'll, I'll go along with that yeah. it is weird uh the the chapter ends with this discussion between Daenerys and Jorah mm. and uh, it's all about whether or not to, to buy these slaves. And Daenerys is saying, you know, when when her brother Rhaegar was sort of fighting against Robert in this rebellion, mm. he had all this support from people who were fighting for him out of love, not because they were paid to mm. or because they had to for whatever reason. Mm. And Jorah says, yeah, you know, that's that's right. And he was brave and very honourable, honorable, uh, but he also died. Yeah. Um, just basically saying people who win tend to be a bit more grey and uh, and that is what swings it really and I think it ends with Daenerys thinking yeah I'm probably going to have to go for this that's true although I think that's not necessarily a smackdown argument because one of the um, one of the things that's uh, that's emerged very clearly like the main the main message of the Game of Thrones series is is Valar Morghulis everybody dies and so I think there's an argument that says he was nice and he died is not necessarily a, a cogent argument for being nasty because if he was nasty, he also would have died and he would have died quicker. And that's what the problem with Aerys Targaryen was. Mm. Um, so, you know, like you, so I, I think what it's, what is interesting is that that may convince Daenerys to buy these slaves. Um, or she may think, that you know she's just had more of an insight into the kind of f- character flaws of this guy that she absolutely trusts with good reason um mm. but who clearly has quite a bleak and um often quite an ugly outlook on the world you know he's kind of he's he's twitchy and he's jealous and and he kisses her without her wanting him to you know and and all of that um so I think it could go one of two ways. Either it convinces her to buy the slaves, or it convinces her that Sechura is a fuckhead. Um, hmm. uh, I mean, we'll see. I don't know. It'll be interesting. I suppose he's bound to argue the case for the slavery because he's, he is, yeah. he's kind of has a past of doing that as well. He, yeah. he sort of puts pragmatism over honour, if you like. Yeah, yeah. Uh, sometimes. Yeah. Well, we shall see what her decision is. Hopefully, in the next part of the book. But uh, that is as far as we're going today. Let's let's talk about the next the next part you're going to read to. Yes. Next time, we will uh, continue with this chapter about Bran, which is up next, and we're going to read as far as page four four two, which is a chapter about Sam, right. which begins up in the loft. A woman was giving birth, um, so he's still alive. Which, suggest, which suggests he isn't still walking through the snow. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's where we're reading up to next time. Right. Out. And and we will and it will be called Kissed by Fire. That's where to read to for next time. We'll pop it in the show notes as well, so you can see uh, where to go. There you go. And the only other thing is about feedback. Uh, once again, if you want to get any comments in about the the bit we've just read or the bit that's coming up, uh, email us at sharkliveroilpodcast at gmail dot com. That's sharkliveroilpodcast at gmail dot com. Or you can find us on Twitter at sharkliveroil. We're also starting to do a bit on Reddit, uh, leaving a few comments on there. You, you know, you can um, you can pick your house 
uh, you know, to a, a badge, you know, pick one of the houses Brilliant. from all of Westeros. Uh, I've gone for the Tall Hearts. So, <laughs> could you not get one a little bit sharkier than that? They've got trees. <laughs> Do you know what their, their motto? Proud and free. Proud and free. So, uh, we're on as them at the moment. Right. Well, I, I picked them because they're only. Th- they're, I think there are there are thousands of people on this on this subreddit, and only thirteen people have chosen the tall hearts. <laughs> so I thought they could do with all the support they can get. <laughs> the, you've you've done it, Matt, haven't you? They're the Hufflepuff of <laughs> bloody Game of Thrones. Yeah. Yeah. There was something a bit Cedric Diggory about Ben for the Tall Heart, wasn't there, when he got drowned? <laughs> Um, yeah, okay, so that's that's as far as we're going. Have you got anything else to say um, about what we've had in this part so far? Um, we gallop on. I think and the most interesting thing is this last little chunk um, in terms of plot with like uh, with Daenerys and Sejora. And is Daenerys about to make a big moral change in her whole outlook and that kind of thing? And if not, where's she going to get her army from? Um, mm. I loved the tension and the terror of that, of the Sam chapter that we started with, you know, the battle at the fist of the first men. And I'm mm. really interested to see how that plays out. I really hope there's a Sam chapter in the next little bit that we're reading. And, um, uh, and it just goes from bad to worse for Rob, doesn't it? Like things fall mm. apart and I really don't want that to happen. I really, really don't want that to happen. But, um, you know, you've got to, it's going to take a while for them to turn it around. And I think he can, you know, I think, I think he's a canny character and, and, and it would be, it would be, uh, it would be a bad thing if it carried on getting worse for them. But that's just, that's just, you know, that's just because I want them to win. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, you see, if he, if he can make it back up north, regroup, I mean, the, the key, key part one, I mean, the, the key objective for Rob now, forget about the Lannisters, it's, Take back Winterfell, isn't it? It is, yeah, yeah. It's actually, it's actually reassert your power in the north, and that'll get any wavering lords back on side as well. Absolutely, um, yeah. maybe, maybe even get the Carstarks back. Yeah, and then you can sort of, you can go on from there. But that's really what he's got to do now, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Right, we'll see how he gets on um, over the course of the rest of the the series, and uh, until next time, enjoy the enjoy the next the next hundred or so pages. And we will uh, we will be back next week. We will. Goodbye. Laters. <laughs> <laughs>